Well, let's get into our time in God's Word. Uh, we're looking at the book of Exodus and at the picture of who God is, who the Lord is. So our scripture reading this morning is going to be from chapters 12 and then 14. You can follow along in the screen, on the screen, or in your Bible. Here we go. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of a door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. It's God's word this morning. 
So what does it mean to be saved? Sometimes we use that word saved. Sometimes we use it in movies, right? I mean, Rose used it of Jack and Titanic. Uh, we used the word saved last week when a certain nobody player from the football team made a play to save the game for his team. Well, we use the word when we don't spend as much money as we should uh, that, we, that we would have otherwise when we saved money or when we remember to push a button on our computers so that we save the work, right? We use it to describe what we do to our leftover food. We saved it, right? It's, the word is used so much that it's almost lost its meaning. Uh, in Barbara Brown Taylor's book, which you heard referenced last week, called The Lost Language of Salvation, she recounts a conversation she had with a Greek friend of hers and, uh, about the Olympic Games, and he sort of laughed at the thought that we Americans call them the Olympic Games. They aren't just sport, he said. They aren't just competition. They aren't just people playing games. Well, she's asked him, oh, what's the right word for them then? He said, I don't know. There's actually not a word in your language for what the Olympics mean. He was saying this, that what the Olympics are, what they represent, what they mean to the Greek people is too large to fit in one word. The meaning, in other words is larger than the word. And in the same way for Christians, when it comes to what the word salvation means, what it means to be saved, delivered, uh, liberated, set free, the Bible's meaning is bigger than the word itself. In fact, it's so big, it's so all-encompassing, so large, so holistic, so impossible to fit into one word, that in a sense, the Hebrew writers didn't even try. They didn't even try. What did they give us? Not a word, but a story. And it's to the greatest story in the Old Testament that we turn this morning. The story of salvation that the rest of the Old Testament points back to as the defining act of the God who claims to be master over the whole world. So let's ask, how does this God save? Three pictures this morning from Exodus. First, through the passing over. Second, through the hemming in. And third, through the stretching out. Let's begin here, number one, and look at the passing over and ask, what's happening here in the book of Exodus? Well, Pharaoh, as we looked at last week, has been told over and over by God through Moses to release the Hebrew people from slavery after centuries of being slaves there. But Pharaoh steadfastly refused, even though nine devastating and escalating plagues have come upon the land and upon the Egyptians. And now, here in verse 23 of chapter 12, God is saying that the final stroke will fall. He is going to send the destroyer destroyer i mean what's that this is the first we've heard that word used in the bible what is it dr tim keller puts it like this he says in one night at one place eternal divine judgment day justice is coming this is (coughs) a preliminary and temporary judgment day god is about to unleash the most inexorable irresistible unstoppable force in the universe the destroyer. It is going to go through the greatest political and military force force the world has ever seen like a knife through hot butter. That's what it is. And then God says to the people, if you can catch it, he's saying, listen, there's only one thing that can save you from this force. It's a lamb. Now you're thinking, a lamb? You mean like fluffy? (laughs) You mean like The family pet, that thing in the backyard, this makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't add up. You're thinking, man, God, you're telling me that this weak and small creature is the only thing that stands between me and this unstoppable force? No thanks, God. I'll take my chances with my Doberman posted guard at the door, right? 
But God says, no, the lamb must die so that you can live. Now, at best, this is totally confusing. And at worst, it's deeply offensive. So let's ask, what does it mean? There's a Jewish scholar at Harvard named Dr. John Levinson who's written a book called The Death and the Resurrection of the Beloved Son who helps put this into context and help us understand exactly what's going on here. He said this quote, that the God of justice and mercy should demand the firstborn of herd and flock (coughs) is a common stumbling block for moderns. That he should demand the same of human families has been judged an offense much longer. Now, Dr. Levinson goes on to say that in ancient cultures, there was no such thing as individual success, individual achievement. There was only family success and family achievement. In ancient cultures, the family was what you put everything into. And if a member of the family failed, it was looked at as representing everyone. And the shame will belong not just into the, to the individual, but to the whole family. Now, we don't think at all like this today. As Americans, of course, we're the most individualistic culture in the history of the world. We think it's all about me and my behavior and my success. I owe my success to no one, and I owe success to no one. I am not responsible for anyone else's uh, efforts or failures or successes. But church, I hope you can see. That on the whole, this is a relatively, largely unbalanced perspective. And you know, deep down, I think we know that. Uh, After the the, the bombing in the Boston Marathon a couple of years ago, there was a massive investigation into not just the bombers, but into the parents of the bombers. Why? We wanted to know why those young people were the way they were. See, ancient cultures to whom God was speaking this message, they understood this. They understood when God said in Exodus 22, Numbers 3, Numbers 8, when he said, the life of every firstborn you shall give to me, unless you redeem it with so many shekels. They understood that that wasn't just something arbitrary, something made up. They knew exactly what it meant. Because in the firstborn son, all the family hopes were set. But because the firstborn represented everything the family was, it represented not just their future hope, but also their past debt of sin. Past debt of sin to God. People today, of course, we don't like this. The idea that someone should owe a debt of sin to God. But think about this. If wrong things, church, are really real and truly wrong, then justice matters. Right To say justice matters, but then to say God should let you off the hook for your injustices is schizophrenic. Schizophrenic. If he were just to let us all off the hook, it would be the same as when injustices go unavenged, in a sense, unpunished in our culture. What happens? There's outrage, and then who pays? Society pays, doesn't it? We pay. Have you ever been outraged, pick an issue, by the lack of justice towards something you care about? I would dare say yes. Well, what about the injustices you've committed towards others? Hmm? See, that Passover night, God is saying, I care about all people's injustices toward one another and toward me. And you know this because he told not just the Egyptians, but the Hebrews. He said, unless your household has the blood on it, unless your doorposts have the blood on it, your firstborn is mine also. See, God's saying, your sin, no matter who you are, it's no different than anyone else's in other words at the risk of sounding a bit dark that night in egypt on every table there would either be a dead son or a dead lamb god was calling in every person's debt and that night every firstborn son looked at the lamb on the table and knew the only reason i'm alive is because something has died in my place 
Listen, don't balk at this because of your cultural moment. Don't sit in judgment on another people group. We all want to be open-minded 21st century citizens, don't we, right? Don't miss the point of the passage, which is this. Just as one individual can pay the debt of the family, so too, can you see, the family's debt can be passed to one individual or something else altogether. Something else, this passage is showing us, something else can pay the debt in our place for us. Oh, it's a beautiful, grace-filled picture. And it's what the Passover shows us, right? Because look at what the Passover lamb did. The Passover lamb didn't as much free them from Egypt as it first saved them from God's judgment, see? And God then commanded them to celebrate it year after year. It wasn't just a one-time celebration. Why? Not only to remind them of the Exodus, but also as a reminder over and over again. They needed a deeper and more personal deliverance, a greater. There's a way of saying, you need not just a a lamb today, but a lamb in the future. Not just one-time lamb, oh, but a greater lamb. And they would celebrate the Passover over and over, not just to remember the Exodus, but to remember their need for deliverance. And the only way to understand what God was really doing here in Exodus is to fast forward to another Passover meal celebrated centuries later. You see, on the night he was betrayed, in the company of his own disciples, Jesus Christ would stand up to uphold the Passover meal as it had been done for centuries. Only there are two massive discrepancies here when he does so. First, when he stands up, everyone assumed that he would be in the place of the presider, whose job it was to stand up and explain the meal. And for centuries, the presider would say about the Passover, this is the bread of our affliction. But Jesus doesn't do that. He stands up and says something totally different. It's not in the script. This is what he says. Not, this is the bread of our affliction. He says, this is my body, my body, which is broken for you. Why? Oh, because he's writing a new script, church. He is saying, my body is the true bread, the true Passover meal, which delivers you not just from temporary forces on the outside, but from eternal forces on the inside. What the old Passover could do only once a year, Jesus is saying, I'm about to do for eternity. This, he says, is my suffering. But that's not the only discrepancy The second one is this. As many scholars have noted, in that passage, there's a reference to bread, there's a reference to the cup, but not to the central element, to the lamb. What kind of Passover is this? I mean, there's no lamb on the table. How can there be a Passover if there's no lamb on the table? And the reason is this. There wasn't a lamb on the table because there was a lamb at the table. A lamb at the table. Oh, why is this night another, uh, a night unlike all other nights as the youngest child would traditionally ask at the meal? Because unlike every other lamb that's ever been offered, this lamb was about to be put to death on the table of God's eternal justice. Not just for one man's debt, not just for a nation's debt, but for the debt of the whole world. God the Father would give his firstborn son so that yours and mine could live. God saves through, church, through the passing over, doesn't he? It's a beautiful picture. But now, oh, back to our story. We've got a little bit more work to do. See, once this Passover, once this first Passover has taken place, now, in the story, you can see at Pharaoh's command, the Israelites go into the desert. And what happens next shows us a second picture of Christian salvation, which shows us we're not just saved by the passing over, but also through what we'll call, number two, the hemming in. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? All right, let's look. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 14, verse 1, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp between a certain place, a camp, and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Now, can you see the picture? There's a million people here. Women, children, animals, they've passed out of the nation of Egypt, but now their old life is about to come and track them back down in an effort to reslave them. So what was God going to do? What's the battle plan from heaven going to be? Here it is. God says, have my people, all the men, women, children, and animals, those who were just freed, have them turn around and stop. Turn around and stop. Not to go forward, not to make progress, but to remain out in the open, utterly vulnerable and exposed in the desert. By having them stop and turn around, they would appear leaderless. It would appear totally chaotic and totally defenseless. What's that? What's God doing here? Oh, he's hemming his people in, isn't he? He's making them appear vulnerable by causing them to look defenseless. Here's why. Because God was luring Pharaoh out into the desert to overcommit, overplay his hand, expose his heart, and be defeated. And in that light, can you see now, the Israelites' weak position was actually the strongest one they could have had, though it was impossible for them to see in the moment. They turned around, and they saw Pharaoh and his whole army and chariots, which, by the way, were the super weapons of the day, all aimed at them. Bearing down on them with nowhere to go. Were they vulnerable? Yes. Were they defenseless? Yes. Were they doomed? Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. What was God doing? He was about to turn their weakness into strength. Turn their disadvantage into an advantage. In church, this is a theme throughout the Bible. It's how God saves. He wins through weakness. It's true in your life, and it's true in real life. Let me show you what I mean. Most famous photograph, hold it for a second. Most famous uh, photograph in the history of the American civil rights movement was taken on May 3, 1963 by a man named Bill Hudson. He died just a few years ago. Uh, He was in Birmingham, Alabama, where Martin Luther King Jr.'s activists had been taking on the city's racist police, excuse me, racist public safety commissioner, a man by the name of Bull Connor. How about that for a name, Bull? The photo was of a teenage boy, here it is, being attacked by a police dog. Perhaps you've seen it. Many consider this picture the one that turned the tide in favor of the civil rights movement. We should ask, though, how? How did it come to be? Well, 1963, when Martin Luther King Jr. came to Birmingham, his movement movement was in crisis. Almost a decade had passed since the Supreme Court had outlawed segregation in schools, and yet the public schools of the Deep South were almost still totally racially divided. The South seemed to be moving backwards. In Birmingham, well, Birmingham was known as the most racially divided city in America. People actually used to tell jokes about Birmingham, uh, the, the kind of jokes that weren't really jokes, and here's an example of it. The joke goes like this. There's a black man that wakes up in Chicago one morning and tells his wife that Jesus had come to him in a dream and told him to go to Birmingham. She is horrified and say, did Jesus actually say he'd go with you? Husband replied, well, he said he'd go as far as Memphis. (laughs) It's about halfway from Chicago. 
Now, Bull Connor, the city's police commissioner, had come to power with a mandate from the people of Birmingham to keep the city racially divided. So, Dr. King and his leader on the ground in Birmingham, by the name of Wyatt Walker, devised a plan aimed at luring out and exposing what was in Bull Connor's heart. The the plan they devised for Birmingham was called Project C for a confrontation. It had three parts, culminating with a series of mass marches designed to fill up the jails. Because, once Connor ran out of jail cells, he would have to confront the people directly and not just arrest him in hopes of making the problem go away. Project C was a high stakes operation. For it to work, Connor had to fight back. As King put it, Connor would have to be induced to tip his hand and reveal his ugly side of the world. And after a month of pressure, finally the day they called D-Day arrived. Thousands of young people skipped school to go pray in a Baptist church, knowing they would be immediately arrested for skipping school after they left the church, which they were. The police arrested and put in jail overnight 600 children and teenagers. And the next day they called Double D-Day. This time 1,500 young people showed up to pray in the church. But the jails were full and Connor had no way of keeping the African-American people out of the streets to protest. And he desperately wanted to keep them from crossing into what he called the white parts of the city. And to keep the blacks from crossing the line into the white part, he called in the firefighters. Calling the firefighters and their water cannons. There was nowhere else to put people. See, the jails were full. The children kept coming to pray. Connor had nowhere to put them. So he ordered his fire chief to turn on the hoses. Turn them on or go home, is what he ordered. So the chief turned them on. Perhaps you've seen the footage. The children clung to one another. Their their, their shirts were ripped from their bodies. They were flung against the walls and uh, doorways. But he was determined that none of the blacks would cross into the white area. Bring out the dogs, then he ordered. He called in eight canine units. Eight. Why did you bring the old dogs out, he said. Why didn't you bring the more vicious ones? The children, though, kept coming. And then a German shepherd leaned in and lunged at one particular boy. The boy, as you saw, last name was Gadsden, leaned in as if to say, take me, here I am. Bill Hudson turned around, snapped the photograph, and on that Saturday, the picture ran on the front page of every church in America, speaking to and convicting the conscience of a nation. And suddenly, the tide turned. A year later, the U.S. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, as it's often been said, was written in Birmingham. But here's the thing. Dr. King and Wyatt Walker said later, they wanted Bull Connor to turn on the hoses and bring out the dogs. Why? (coughs) They knew that to defeat the evil there, they had to lure it out for all the world to see. How did they do it? By allowing themselves to be hemmed in, hemmed in in jails, in front of water cannons, by police dogs. Let me ask you, does their behavior make you a bit uncomfortable? It shouldn't. They were running God's play straight out of Exodus 14. They were luring evil out by making themselves vulnerable. And by doing this, they caused their enemy to overplay his hand. And church, this is the way God wins. This is the paradox of weakness. Evil cannot understand how to overcome that kind of good. Evil cannot fathom that good only wants freedom, not power. See, see Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, he couldn't imagine a person who wouldn't take up evil and power in the ring to fight him. So what do the heroes do? They send an utterly and defenseless person right up to his doorstep and defeat him. How? By throwing power itself into the fire. And this is how you win in relationships. Not by growing harder, 
by growing softer. Not by yelling at your wife and kids, bullying people to get your way, blowing up in anger. No, by listening. Not by nagging your husband, by serving him. See, God allowed Pharaoh to overplay his hand. Why? Because this is how evil hangs itself. And it would, once more, centuries later, as God himself became utterly vulnerable in another desert outside the city, in another desolate place, he became utterly defenseless. God became breakable. And on the cross, he was broken. But it was in the breaking, can you see, that evil was defeated. It was through becoming weak now that we can be saved. God saved Moses and Israel then and can save us today through the hemming in through the paradox of weakness. Now let me ask you, do you want to know this God? Hmm? You've got to become weak yourself. You've got to give up your rights. You're right to do what you want when you want it. Go where you want when you want to. To become a Christian is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, as God in your life. You say, oh, that doesn't make me feel strong. It makes me feel weak. Yeah, that's right. But that's the paradox. That's the paradox. Through losing, you win. Through surrendering, you conquer. Through lowliness, you become great. You say, Morgan, that sounds real nice. And all it's nice preacher talk. But how? Hmm, how can I really trust this God? How can I trust him with my heart and my life? Well, you can trust him because of the third and final picture we're given in Exodus of what salvation means. The third and greatest picture we're given is number three, what we'll call the stretching out. The stretching out. Verse 15 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now to understand just how remarkable and how startling actually this statement is and what it means, we've got to back up our story for just a moment. All right, in this story, Pharaoh here has charged. He set into motion a course of action from which there's no turning back. This is the moment that will determine the fate of a nation. They appear to be moments away from being slaughtered as if they've come up to the one thing that God cannot deliver them from. Which, of course, is always like that in our life, right? There's always a thing. This is the moment (laughs) I've arrived at. God can't deliver me from this. Maybe he's done it in the past, but not today. This is the one thing it appears that God can't deliver from. And so what did the children of Israel do? They do the same thing we do. (laughs) They totally freak out. (laughs) And what they say next would be comic if it weren't so tragic. It wasn't because there were no graves in Egypt. I can just see it. It's hilarious. That you brought us to the desert to die. What have you done? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to stay there, right? Now, this demonstrates a massive failure in memory. First of all, they never actually said this. We'll look at that next week. But second of all, it shows also what they've forgotten. I mean, come on. Ten plagues, right? Ten signs, which has done what? Caused them to be free. Uh, you think after all they've seen, after all God's done, they would say, well, it looks like we're just going to need one more miracle, right? I mean, God sent hail. He sent, uh, you know, frogs. He sent flies, darkness, some, whatever the destroyer is, <laughs> to break our slave masters. We've emerged unscathed. Any minute, God's going to just do one more miracle. But they don't say that. They complain. All of them. They are coming apart at the seams. The whole nation is demonstrating an unbelievable depth 
of ingratitude at God's deliverance. A total lack of faith in God. All of them, except for one man. Except for one man, Moses, who is the picture of composure here. And how does he respond? He responds perfectly. Perfectly. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Church, here is the picture of the ultimate heart response towards God. And it's what you ought to say today. Don't be afraid, self. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. See, here is Moses. He's trusting the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. He literally cannot be trusting God anymore. But look, in a shocking turn of events, what does he get? What does God say to him? He gets a rebuke. God says, why are you crying out to me? But Moses wasn't crying out to God. He was instructing the people. He was standing firm and steadfast. This word crying means this. Why are you complaining, Moses? Why are you falling apart, Moses? Why are you failing me, Moses? But Moses isn't, is he? No, he hasn't done that. What's going on? What's amazing? See, God is treating Moses as the people deserve. Moses is getting the rebuke, the blow, the rejection. The Israelites deserve, though he had done no wrong. And what does he do once he absorbs the blow? Oh, he stretches out his hand over what was an infinite gap between God's people and their freedom. See, a way was being made where there was no way. How? Oh, through the people's mediator, through one man who stood before them, taught them, loved the Lord his God with all his heart, and yet got the treatment the people deserved. And once he got that, he stretched out and the sea divided. So how, back to our question, how can you trust the Lord your God, you ask? Like this. Because centuries later, there would be another Moses, a greater Moses, who wouldn't just teach the people from God, but who would teach them as God. There was a greater Moses who didn't just love the Lord as God perfectly in a moment of crisis, but in every moment, at every crisis. And what did he get for it? The treatment we deserve for all of our selfishness and the poison of ingratitude in our hearts. All of our self-addiction. He got the ultimate rebuke, didn't he? A bloody and grotesque crucifixion as the ultimate vulnerable lamb on the cross. And he stretched out his arms over an infinite space. The space between you and God. Which you could never cross on your own. But here's the difference. Unlike Moses, Jesus didn't go through. He didn't make it. He drowned under the weight of the sea of our sin so that we could pass from death to life. And that's the gospel. And for you, church, this is how you pass from death to life. That night, as the people went through, you know, some of them went through excited, celebrating, this is it, the moment we've waited for. They saw the water piled up and they were thrilled. But you know, some had to be terrified. They had to be thinking, and the water is going to come down at any moment. We're doomed. We're in for it. You know, some people were afraid. I mean, how often do you just trust God with your life like this? But let's ask, how could both kinds of people, both those of strong faith and weak faith, both cross over and be saved? Here's why. Because the strength of their faith had nothing to do with their salvation. It wasn't the strength of their faith that saved them. It was the object of their faith that saved them. How much faith do they need? Only enough to put one foot into God's plan. One foot into God's plan. Their part was to go in. 
God's part was to save. Let me apply this briefly in two ways. First, that's the picture of what it means to walk with God. How much faith do you need to overcome in your situation today? Hmm? Only enough to put one foot in and keep putting one foot in front of the other. How much faith do you need to persevere in your marriage, hmm? in your job, in your heartbreak, heartache? Only enough to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's your part. Hear this. It's your part to go through. It's God's job to come through. And he will. And he will if you'll just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And second, yeah. And second, to become a Christian means you don't look at the size of the faith that you've got or not got on the inside. It means to look out at the salvation God has worked for you. That's what it means to become a Christian. We'll trust him to move in our hearts right now as we pray. Lord, we come to you. Lord, as we close, Lord, we're trusting you to move in our hearts. Lord, to move in our lives. Lord, to make a way. Thank you that you've made a way where there hasn't been a way for us through Jesus, our mediator, our lamb, the one who was vulnerable on a cross in a desert for us. Lord, all these pictures, how does this God save? Over and over, Lord, you're speaking to our hearts. Lord, you're drawing us in. And God, may we respond today. If you're here, and you've not become a Christian. You've not committed your heart to Jesus for him to be Lord of your life. You say, today is my day. I'm going to put one foot into God's plan. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. I pray for you. Anyone with the courage just to put their foot in. Step into God's plan. Yes. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Lord, for these, would you meet them now in in this holy place? If you raise your hand, actually all of us, can we just pray this? Say, Lord Jesus, come to you today, and I thank you for being the God of salvation. Thank you that you've made a way where there wasn't a way. And right now, I repent of doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. Right now, I receive you in the throne of my life as the Lord of my life and the Savior of my sin. I ask that your blood would cover me that I would live. And I commit by your grace to serve you forever. In Jesus' name. And second, church, if you're here, there's a man, a rough spot. You feel hemmed in by the sea, by some uh, a circumstance of your life. You're saying you're trusting God to deliver you, though you don't see how it's going to happen. Would you raise your hand today? I'm going to pray for you. Mm. Oh, God, I'm praying. Actually, if you raise your hand, would you just stand up right here in this place? Stand up, yes. Lord, so many of us, Lord, we, we come to these moments in our lives where we, you have to make a way, where you have to come through. And Lord, we see today it's our job, Lord, just to go through, but it's your job to come through. And Lord, our faith is in you just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. God, would you lift up our eyes and help us to see that you're the God who's delivered us. And because you delivered us in the past, surely you'll deliver us in the days and the moments to come. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we just repent for not keeping our trust in you. Lord, for not believing your word. Once you said, you've promised you'll never leave us, nor forsake us. Lord, let that strength now coming to us. Well, we see and say what Moses said. We stand firm today. Stand firm. Well, let courage now come to these. Courage come to these as they become vulnerable before you and others. Thank you for their deliverance and their rescue in Jesus' name. Amen. Church.